Hi, and welcome to season two of Elephant Stories. Woohoo! This season, we bring you more brilliant, passionate folks who are working to fight poverty and inequity in all its insidious forms. I've already completed four interviews, and I'm telling you, you're going to love them. We start with David Johns, executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition and social justice crusader, particularly for the LGBTQIA community. In true Elephant Stories fashion, our conversation is somehow both wide and deep. We cover everything from drafting legislation to HIV protection and detection to the wonder that is the mind of a kindergartner. Mr. Johns, Dr. Johns, by the time many of y'all hear this, takes us to school. He brings a wealth of experience, knowledge of those who came before him, and he's got the citations. So get ready. We do touch on some challenging topics, and full disclosure, you'll hear me struggling to use affirming terms, so please show me grace when I mess up. Also, we do bleep out a word or two, but that's really just to please my mom. Finally, there were some internet issues, so you'll hear some intermittent buzzing. All right, grab your pen and paper, and let's dive in. David Johns, I am the son of Edith and Homer. Um, I will be celebrating my 40th birthday in a week. I caught sense to use a term from a uh, mentor and scholar, Yolanda Celia Ruiz in Inglewood, California. And that was contextualized by uh, Summers and the legacy of my parents both being from Austin, Texas. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. See, look, Texas, although there's lots of horrible things happening in that state now. I know. Part of loving Texas is, is, is accepting, not accepting, but recognizing the craziness of Texas. I'm actually going to stop you because I have a question, which is, I've never heard that phrase, caught since. Ah, yeah. So Yolanda C. Ruiz is a professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, uh, and I am uh, especially indebted to her. Uh, because she accepted the invitation to join my dissertation defense. Uh, and today, uh, as we're having this conversation, I scheduled my defense for April. Uh, so super excited that there's light at the end of this tunnel. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what she often talks about in her praxis, uh, the space where her theoretical understandings meet practice, um, is that many of us are nurtured in spaces and by people um, and cultures and ways of being um, that allow us to show up in the world as we do. Uh, and so the phrase she uses is caught sense. Uh, and so for me, I talk about uh, my home and my home is shaped by uh, my family um, as where I caught sense. Connected to that and how I show up in the world, I'm an educator. Uh, I taught kindergarten and, and third grade after graduating from undergraduate school at Columbia University. And while I was teaching, I pursued my master's degree, which connects to the PhD that we were just talking about. But so much of my work um, throughout my formative years, and then especially uh, while teaching in the classroom and then the policy work that I pursued thereafter, was focused on uh, leveraging power to provide equity um, to those of us who are the most marginalized. Uh, and a lot of that work continues to be centered on children and students and schools and after teaching elementary school, the long and short of it is that I took a pay cut from teaching to pursue a fellowship with the Congressional Black Caucus. And then I spent a decade crafting federal domestic primarily policy, uh, mostly in the U.S. Senate for the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Um, I worked for uh, Ted Kennedy until he died. I rest his soul. Tom Harkin thereafter. 
Barack Obama became, came our first Black president, his fabulous wife, Michelle LeVon Robinson, uh, graced us all with her presence. And then I led, I was appointed to lead a White House initiative on educational excellence for African-Americans, a space that allowed me to, to marry the best parts of my researcher, classroom teacher, and advocate selves. In that capacity, one thing that was really important to me was disrupting this habit that adults have of talking about students and not allowing them to talk for themselves. It happens also with white folks who want to talk about anti-Blackness without naming white supremacy, for example. (laughs) And so we created the Summit Series with um, Johnson Publishing Company, uh, Ebony uh, Magazine. And we produce summits around the country where the one rule is that the only experts who got to speak and contribute to this reform agenda to support African-American educational excellence were students some of them as young as kindergarten. And one of those summits we produced was specifically focused on Black LGBTQIA plus youth. Um, I produced in a partnership with a wonderful woman named Sharon Letman Hicks, who at the time was the executive director. She's now the CEO of the National Black Justice Coalition. And it was both among the, if not the most challenging thing I did in that role and also the most rewarding And so after he who shall not be named took occupancy of the Oval Office, continuing in that role was not an option for me. I enrolled in a PhD program. I'm a sociologist. I study how whiteness and white supremacy works in public schools, which are um, the most foundational institution to preserving the democracy that we know in this country and related to that, the systems that we know associated with white supremacy. And I accepted the invitation to lead the National Black Justice Coalition. So the last part of this is that NBJC is the only civil rights organization, national civil rights organization in this country that focuses on the intersections of racial equity and LGBTQIA plus equality. A lot of our work is uh, informed by the Black feminist teachings of Fannie Lou Hamer, who said, ain't none of us free unless and until all of us are free, Mm -hmm. uh, if this is mine and is connected to the legacy of Black, uh, queer, trans, non-binary, LGBTQIA+. I use the term same gender loving. I don't use gay because gay is a white male political identifier, and that's not me. And so it's connected to the legacy of folks like Byron Rustin, who you can see, but people listening can't see me motioning because there's a picture of him, a painting that sits over my shoulders. And a lot of our work right now is focused on reducing stigma and increasing support around things like HIV, which continues to disproportionately impact Black folks, not just Black queer folks, are who the CDC calls men who have sex with men, um, but Black cis heterosexual women as well, and Black children, youth and young adults, um, 12 through 24. We're focused a lot on the mental health crisis that is showing up in our community. There were recent manifestations of it and that in February, we celebrated the what would have been the 18th birthday of Nigel Shelby, who was a Black 16-year-old boy who died by suicide in part because he was being bullied in school, who was told by teachers who he sought support from to dance it off because Black people like music. Can I, can I interrupt and of just course. say that um, one of the more kind of shocking not surprising, I don't think, but more shocking things about going to your website is mm-hmm. seeing all the memorials to particularly mm-hmm. the black trans. Uh, yeah. And they're mostly, they're very young. They're mostly very young people. 
Yeah, they're, um, uh, you're referencing Stolen Lives. I appreciate that. Uh, we do a lot of work in that space. It is anchored by gender-based violence. So we understand what Malcolm X named some time ago, which are the challenges that Black women face. We also understand that Black women means cis and trans, right? Mm-hmm. Trans women existed even before the term existed, at least in the way in which we use it. And last year was the deadliest year on record for Black trans folks. The vast majority of them are femme identified, a significant mm-hmm. proportion of them dark Black women, right? Oh, I definitely didn't know. Yeah, to name the ways that expectations around beauty and body also show up in this context. And so a lot of our work is about, uh, one, helping people understand that this is a crisis, right? Yeah. Too often, trans folks are, are dead named or misgendered, um, which prevents and sometimes ensures that there's never any justice connected to um, how their lives were stolen or the ways in which their family uh, uh, get families get closure to the extent that they can at all. And we try and help increase awareness about it and really conversations about it, in part because a lot of the violence is at the hands of Black cis het men. Our work is, in short, showing up in the spaces where we can add value. It's anchored by a policy focus. We spend a lot of time thinking about the Equality Act federally, a lot of the voting rights legislation, uh, which has a disproportionate impact upon those of us who have intersectional identities, gravely concerned about what's happening in Florida now, which is the last thing I'll speak to. The governor of Florida, um, who stole that election, Rod DeSantis, is offered a suite of bills that essentially read like um, a surveillance state. He is uh, positioning himself to be a fascist, outflanking, he who shall not be named as they both prepare to run for um, president and the next election in two years. It'll start much sooner than that, given that we're in, in a midterm election year. But today they fast track a bill called the Stop Woke Act, which would make it illegal for companies or schools to allow us to have a conversation like this Yeah, uh, in the state of Florida. Uh, it specifically names like woke consultants uh, <laughs> and critical race theory as problems deserving of political uh, and social investments. And last week they passed through the House, I believe, a don't say gay bill, yeah. which would criminalize teachers like myself who invite their children, our students to think about connections to families. And for uh, children that have saved you to loving or queer families, I would have to shame them uh, into not sharing it or risk losing my job. And so a lot of our work is helping to support the advocacy efforts on the ground in Florida and in the states where people are offering similar legislation. It's also helping Black folks who Uh, care deeply about us, but who often don't think about their uh, privilege uh, and how it allows them to not have to think about some of these challenges that those of us with intersectional identities face and to help them again appreciate that all of us have to be in this effort of making sure that we can be liberated together for it to actually work. You know, I'm loving this conversation because I'm I'm definitely one of those folks who has not had to think about a lot of things, right? I'm so busy worried about being a short black woman that I don't don't get to think about other things. And I recently did a lot of thinking, spent a lot of time trying to figure out the whole gender is a construct, right? That phrase. Mm -hmm. 
And Mm -hmm. of course I've heard race as a construct for decades. And so I was like trying to make Mm -hmm. that comparison. But when I think about the number of conversations that I had to have with different people, different genders, different gender representation, different academic backgrounds, just, just like noodling it around before it finally clicked. And one of the things I remember saying, um, the, my friends who are listening will probably be like, yeah, that was an afternoon I lost because I remember saying that, oh, wait, it, it just so happens that I fit the social construct of a cisgender woman. Therefore, I've never had to think about it. Right. Which is the same thing I realized because when I when when I was coming up, I'm a little bit older than you. When I was coming up, the big issue was gay or straight life, uh, lifestyle. Like, is it a choice? Are you born that way? Does, um, mm-hmm. Is bisexual a thing? Mm-hmm. Like that was the that was the conversation when I was coming up. Right. And I remember realizing, mm-hmm. well, I didn't choose mm-hmm. to be straight. So whatever. So I like I, it's. But what mm-hmm. what is what is getting me is that you talk about the space and thinking about educators, it took a lot of conversations for me to be able to think about that. Like that's one of the things about elephant stories Mm -hmm. is that people are so complex and the issues that we're trying to resolve are so complex. This can't be done in a workshop. Like you haven't talked about quote unquote poverty yet, but one of the reasons that you're being asked to talk to someone who, like me, who's interested in anti-poverty is that I know that LGBTQIA plus folks are yeah. more likely to be impoverished. They have more barriers to getting to different systems or programs that might be helpful. They're also more stigmatized yeah, once do. they touch mm-hmm. um, systems. And, and systems does include the educational system because you talked about, like, stigmatizing the, the um, don't say gay act, how it stigmatizes, you know, you can't talk about families and young children who have families, but it also is another punch in the gut to our teachers who just have to take so much because that means that if your partner is same gender, if your partner drops off the lunch, you forgot, you know, you can't respond to them in the same way that you would respond to them if you're a partner, if you're a cisgender um, yeah. heterosexual couple. Yeah. Like it's there's there's so many layers yeah. that when people just throw things out, they're not thinking about yeah. how that ripple effect is. And so let me get to one of the things I want to ask you about listening to your, you know, your your story of how you got there, got here. You're like, like I said, perfect because you totally understand the elephant. You know, um, I love folks who because I'm one of these who start out studying one thing and just end up in a totally different place mm-hmm. in their lives because they're following all the connections. Like I did not start out studying race and inequity and all that. I just mm-hmm. was interested in babies and how they develop and how they get optimal development. So I am interested then in how or why you're still in policy. Like why is policy the lever that you thought this is where I can make the most difference. Ha. Okay. Um, I think in threes. Okay. Uh, One is because policy is where power is used as a tool by those often in positions of privilege to preserve it. And given what I know about how institutions 
in this country, in this experiment uh, in democracy, uh, self-governed democracy works, it's the very site for me to apply all of the lessons that Black feminist and critical race theorist, to use the term proper, Lillian, as it should be applied. Uh, Dr. Uh, Crenshaw, thank you. Her and Patricia Hill Collins, right? Uh, acknowledging yeah. the, the rich legacy that exists in that way. Uh, Annabelle Hooks, uh, who has written about critical thinking as something that is incredibly important. It gets um, uh, snatched out of children who are born geniuses, to use the quote of a black sociologist, Asa Hillier, what he said specifically was, I've never met a child in particular, a black child who is not a genius. And there's no secret to how you support them. The first thing you do you do is acknowledge them as human. And then you support them with love, which is connected to my second point. What I know is that too often, for reasons that are beyond our control, because we don't ask to be bored, and I didn't get a say in the body that I occupy, and then the rules that have been written and attached to the sign systems and symbols, what Black feminists refer to as the matrix of domination that allows the elephant to exist <laughs> and be omnipresent and yet uh, uh, hyper invisible at the same time, right? Like mm-hmm. all of those things for me uh, are, are, they're contestable in the policy process where the work is defining problems identifying solutions and alternatives to that policy problem, which at the federal level should be anchored in some social good, public good, and then working in coalition with, I'm thinking about uh, whether or not I want like-minded to fall from my lips, but it just did, with like-minded people toward an outcome that in some way, shape, or form should be anchored in addressing the initial problem. Now, what I know as uh, I teach the policy process at American University now, a graduate course, what I know is that the process isn't rational, it's not linear, it's incredibly messy. And as a recipient of the wisdom of so many of our ancestors and elders who have done this work in so many different spaces, I get excited about being able to use these tools in the policy arena. And then the last thing is that this is where, thus far uh, in this journey called life in this body, um, the ancestors have led me. And so I, I, I find that when I think about my, when I reflect upon, to be specific, my career path to date, I feel really proud of myself and that I've always led by passion. I've always done the things that have felt good, including leaving, <laughs> taking a pay cut and saying, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Connected to that, I've always... And I've gotten more strategic and thoughtful about this, but I've taken calculated risks, right? When I graduated from college and I told my, my, my friends I wanted to, and my family that I wanted to teach elementary school, they thought I was crazy. Like, <laughs> literally had an intervention, like, you want a school? We can build you a school. What, what do you mean you want to go teach? And then I said, and then I said, hey, right? After they got comfortable with that, because they see how I show up at the space with the babies and how they allow me to show up in the world. I'm like, I'm going to take a pay cut from teaching and move to DC to be a fellow. <laughs> Right, they're like, wait, we didn't even watch the West Wing. What do you mean? Right, this pre pre Barack Obama uh, and, and the family. Right, so I, I've also feel really proud of my ability to, to talk about the importance of those of us who have privilege because we've inherited our, our required it to use it for good, 
And I am unique in the way that I show up in uh, policymaking spaces, right? Which is not unique in the course of my lifetime. I took a bus an hour from my home in Inglewood, California to the schools I attended in Brentwood and then Pacific Palisades, California, very white and uh, socioeconomically challenged because of environmental reasons outside of the control of many of the people forced to live there um, compared to white folks who often profited off of that, um, uh, the environmental control of of Black folks in an environment that was removed from that. And so a, a lot of that is consistent in the way that I show up now in policymaking spaces where I'm often in legacy uh, civil rights spaces, think NAACP, National Urban League, National Action Network, Black Greek fraternities and sororities. I'm a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Uh-oh. Um, I'm in Hasi. It's always something, right? But I show up in those spaces reminding Black folks that, like, we've always been queer, right? And 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 the stigma associated with sexual minority status in this country is very much a tool of white supremacy, akin to that which you already understand so clearly based on lived experience and then showing up also in progressive white spaces to say, ah, ah remember, y'all are white as well. And and, and, and and whiteness is insidious in all of its forms. And so let's lead from an anti-Black and intersectional lens um, such that the things that you purport to care about can actually manifest in ways that allow folks to be free. This is what I want to ask you. I don't do policy work. I do policy adjacent, right? I hope that my research can inform policymakers. Can you talk about what that actually means? Like, what what are some of the concrete actions that are involved in being a policy advocate? Yes. Uh, My job as a policy advocate, or the term that I, I often use with my students, is policy entrepreneur, is to do at least three things. One is to be clear in defining and then communicating to folks who are not engaged, who are policy adjacent, how policy problems are defined. Right. The, the core of the policymaking process has has to do with how problems are defined. Right. Think about, for example, the policy solution of welfare was attached to a particular understanding of the social challenges that welfare recipients were facing and the nuances of how those problems were articulated, e.g. the welfare queen as a way that people talked about that problem manifesting and deserving a policy response also showed up in some of the policy requirements, e.g. drug testing as a condition of receiving federal benefits that are required for for somebody to actually be Mm self-sufficient, right? The second thing after, right, in the process, so you define the problem, then there's the the process of identifying solutions. So advocates in in my position, especially connected to a federal civil rights organization, are very much engaged in the process of shaping solutions. And those solutions look different based on how the problem is defined and the audience or the policy actor that we're engaged in in, in this process with, right? So the easiest way to think about this is Schoolhouse Rocks, right? Three branches of government. Um, Two-thirds of our work is in the legislative branch, and it literally is in crafting legislation. This is where I use the experience that I cultivated over 10 years writing laws to help people write actual laws. A lot of that work also, I think the second most significant use of our resources is engaging with the uh, administrative branch, not just the president and 
uh, his cabinet, but agency directors, right? People who are responsible for governing the bureaucracies that allow the systems that many of us take for granted, but we rely upon every day to live in our homes if we're, we're privileged enough to have one or to otherwise navigate in the world. We, we try and help those people do their jobs in ways that are aligned with intersectional equity. And then the last thing that we do, that I do, a lot of in particular, is communications. And so it's connecting the dots. It's saying to folks who are policy adjacent and or who are like, policy doesn't affect me. Uh, no, here are all of the ways in which it does. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and here are the ways in which taking for granted the ways in which it affects you means that you are often being harmed by those in positions of power, either elected or appointed. And so whether that's engaging with students and helping them think about how policies are made at their schools or in their communities, helping uh, caring and concerned adults think about the policy decisions and apparatus that, that exist uh, in their places of employment, are the uh, organizations that they are members of and commit their time, talent, and treasures to, or helping people engage more directly with the legislative process connected to voting and the responsibilities that elected leaders have at the state, federal, and local level, we try and show up and help people understand that they can own their power and that doing so in, in ways that are anchored in policy are incredibly important. I can tell that you're, like you, you're, your passion seems parallel to mine in that it's like there's lots of things that need to be done, and this is this is my piece. For me, it's mm-hmm. research and evaluation, and it's like that's also not any good unless it's communicated. Right. Like so many policy people and so many researchers, so many experts in their field, unless their field is communications, are horrible communicators. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I love hearing that. I even love the things about like obviously I had to do research for this. So it's all on your website and just the little things like the the banners that have like title mm-hmm. banner, but there's a, a cursor blinking, which I'm like, yes, because there's more to be done and more to be said. Like, this isn't the end of it. And like, it's that kind of thing. And you said that you love, uh, you think in threes, which explains your three things with David John. Thanks for that. (laughs) But these are all things that like are like people can understand. And I want to jump back to one of the things that you said in your policy three, which was helping. You spent 10 years writing bills. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people don't understand who's actually mm-hmm. writing bills. And so in the same way that I'm like, okay, we need, I need to do whatever I can to convince young people that research is fun and that you should go through all the work to become a researcher because otherwise your voice isn't in the room. I feel like it's the same thing with policy because these policies, like talk about who actually writes the policies because it's, it's not the congressmen and women. Sometimes it's not even their aides. I know from my, I spent about 10 years. So working at um, executive side at HHS and, you know, some of those bills are written by companies, you know, forget about lobbyists, even they're just written by pure companies to insert their own priorities. Okay. You, you packed a lot into that. Um, so <laughs> Sorry, no, I, that's what no, I don't do. Be sorry. You talk in three, I talk in three. <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh, and this is what researchers do. So a footnote. I also I talk in threes also because research shows that people can hold on to three things. Uh, and when I name three, mm-hmm. it allows me to hold myself accountable for three things. And then 
it also helps people to engage because then they're thinking and checking off one, two, three, right? Um, you'll think about that now that I've said it. <laughs> and so again, just the, just again, anchoring that these things matter. I'm going to come back to words matter in a second. Um, yes and no, right? So I want to use a, a paintbrush and not a, a rolling brush in this regard. So it is often the case, especially now that conservative right-wing legislation that is especially introduced to, one, um, advance the bottom line of an interest group, so often a business, right, named in the context in which you described it, or to compel voters to go to the polls, which is what we're seeing a lot more in what resulted in Virginia's governor turning out voters, again, challenging this phantom ghost of critical race theory and banning books from libraries, a practice that we engaged in fighting against because Black people were banned from libraries some time ago and people again forget that because we actually can't talk about history because now <laughs> we're attacking critical race theory. But th- those types of legislation are often supported by organizations that understand the policymaking process and simply give the bills to members or they pass them through associations. And then I'll just name Alec is one of the principal ones. If anybody who's listening is not yet read, The 13th is the film. Uh, it's, it's based on the book by Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. She does a really good job of making all of this uh, vividly clear, right? Model legislation is a very big deal. Here's a clip from USA Today explaining how it works. One system for that? is called modelation. It's sort of a fill-in-the-blanks way to create a new law. USA Today compared the text of 2,000 model bills against every bill introduced in every state from 2010 to 2018, looking for when the models had been copied. We ran them for months on the equivalent of more than 100 computers. They compared hundreds of thousands of bills against each other to find when text from one had been copied to another. It turns out it's happening in every state. We found more than 10,000 bills were almost entirely copied from model legislation. More than 2,000 of these bills became laws. But the point here is that there's a process by which the bills that we're seeing now uh, be introduced happen and are supported by these entities. The biggest example I can offer in this moment is that last year, there were more than 150 pieces of legislation uh, targeting trans folks. It sort of laid the foundation for the Don't Say Gay bill that I mentioned earlier. The vast majority of those bills targeted um, girls in schools. Uh, Again, think about the ways in which discrimination against women and girls in this country disproportionately impacts Black women and girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we think about, again, naming intersectionality. Again, you get to see how these things become vividly clear. I hope they become more, more clear. Those bills are introduced and supported by these associations who also then will contribute to the election campaigns and coffers of the members that introduce them and show up to help them get reelected. This process of uh, what's called voter-based behavior by legislators who signal that they will uh, pander, for lack of a more thoughtful term, um, to interest groups or to particular constituents is what allowed he who shall not be named to amass um, the political capital um, that he still has, right? That that happens. And it is more often the case that people who craft legislation are committee staffers. Right? Okay. They are oft, often 
And I don't want to speak in generalities because, to be clear, there are two chambers uh, in Congress, right? The upper chamber, the Senate, the lower chamber, the House. I hate those terms, but that's how people refer to them. Three things that are helpful in this regard. One is that there's a difference between personal office staff and committee staff. Um, All members, all legislative officials have personal office staff that are responsible for casework, which is the work that they do for constituents to ensure that they get reelected. It's the, we ain't send you to Congress just to be up there being a fancy dinner. So you better, you better come on and respond to these requests, right? That's casework. That's personal office staff. That's usually when you walk into a member's office on Capitol Hill, which people should do. Those are your offices, they're public buildings. Just be respectful, not like the insurrectionists, huh? Um, comportment is a term that comes to mind, right? Like you, you typically engage with personal office staff. I was committee staff. Committee staff tend to be more specialized with regard to expertise, and we support the actual business of the legislative branch. So each member gets assigned to a committee, bills that are introduced get uh, assigned to committees, and then it's the staff that works through those issues. And so what was interesting for me is that I was in the Senate in 2007, and I spent almost all of my time in the Senate as the only Black man Mm. on a committee that is responsible for almost half of the legislation introduced in any given Congress. Yeah, that's that's amazing because the health committee is huge. It is huge, but it's also, again, it's the health committee of the United States Senate. So how many Black members are in the Senate? (laughs) How many Black, right? How many Black members of of our Congress? And you think about staff, there are conversations now that are happening for the first time ever. There was a bill introduced to allow staffers to organize. So the second point is that like, it's an incredibly privileged space to be in. I mentioned earlier, I took a pay cut to be a fellow on the Hill to allow me to do this work. It is incredibly expensive to be in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Right. The same politics that are at play that allow white and privileged and white adjacent folks to send their kids to what was the PAGE program. So they get experience and build these relationships. They go to programs like Boys Club or our state, right? They 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 develop the things that allow them to then show up and be successful. They also can afford to to to, to work for free because yeah. it's subsidized, right? Because they they have an in, inherited capital that somebody else has labored for. And so I was the only black man. I often remarked that I was the only public school teacher. Uh, I would shut down debates all the time by reminding folks. I read the same book you read, and I know what this is like in praxis, right? It's one of the reasons why I I, I know I was successful, especially at a, a young age. I'm doing young in air quotes because I think that um, uh, chronology is, again, a tool of white supremacy in the way in which it's employed in this country. But I was also, and this was the, the, the hardest part about it, like m- most of my colleagues had personal connections to the members or institutions of, of privilege, right? So I'd come from Columbia, S- Senator Kennedy, Massachusetts. A lot of folks were at, were at Harvard, right? Like Andover, the, there are these feeders into this process. But I often would cry, literally cry, not in front of them, but by myself with my community in the company of ancestors, thinking about the fact that I was one of few people, if the only one that had a connection to somebody that would be affected by that legislation. Yeah. Um, and the example that often would come to mind is like, I worked on child welfare and shut down a whole conversation when people were like, you know, theorizing about it. And I was like, let me talk about my sister mm. and how this is affecting her as somebody who was dealing with decisions that are hypothetical to y'all in this space. And that often result in trade-offs based on political compromise 
are where we are. Things that are important that are environmental factors, things that are built into how the institutions work, but they have real practical implications in the lives of people. They contribute to health disparities. They contribute to people's exposure to poverty and toxic stress and uh, trauma, right? Like uh, there are reasons why all of these things happen. And it was, is my obligation to be disruptive, to say the things that are going to make people uncomfortable and then to be a connector, right? So this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, which is I get really excited when I'm able to help people appreciate like everything is a construct. Again, like things always haven't been this way. The the knowledge that we have is been cultivated by a process of somebody saying this is what we, we're going to value and, and celebrate. And policy is one of the ways in which that, that happens. So we were talking earlier about um, employment and you used the example of, you know, the privilege of having somebody drop off their lunch. What I often thought about is that before two years ago, in the last two years, the Supreme Court of the United States passed a decision, which was uncharacteristic given their hyper-conservative orientation at present. And it's the Bostic decision. The Bostic decision essentially says now it is illegal. It is unconstitutional to discriminate against someone based on sex, right? Which takes care of gender discrimination, as well as sexual identity, gender orientation or expression. And and the thing that I used to sit with is like, in my parents' state of Texas, before that bill was passed, I could even be fired for putting a picture of a friend on my desk that somebody would assume is a partner. Right. Right. And so I have like these these things are important for me to do and talk about because they are so palpable and omnipresent and insidious in the way in which they affect our lives. And it is through policy decisions and practices that they become omnipresent and yet hyper invisible at the same time. Yeah, you speak about the responsibility of showing up. And I think about how the fact that there is a understandable and worthy effort to teach non-marginalized folks what it's like to be marginalized. And I'm I'm using that to cast the biggest, the biggest net, right? But man, it's so much easier if we can just get folks who have lived these these things in because yeah, the the experiences are so rich and so embedded that you can't just read a book on what it's like to be fill in the blank, right? Because one, it's going to leave out a lot of hats. It's right. going to leave out like all the different things that you do in life and all the different places that you step. It's going to leave out a lot of internal conflicts because you you and I share something and that is this responsibility of a modicum of privilege, I guess I'll say. And that is, you know, that responsibility of, okay, I've been, I have this access that so many don't. Not only do I not want to squander it. And I think this is you because you're, you went into education. I also want to share it so that people coming up beside and behind me can also exercise this privilege and can feel this privilege. And so instead of me going around handing out copies of white fragility, I can just have a bunch of people who live the experience stepping in and stepping into positions of power and positions of influence. Yes. Uh, I'm going to name it. That was a lot there. Two things struck me. One is 
I reject the current way in which conversations about the best response to all of these challenges are had, which presupposes that white folks and our people in positions of privilege need to now listen to and learn from those of us who have been marginalized as a result of their privilege and then do something. That unnerves me Mm. for two reasons. One is I don't need you to think that you can learn about me. In fact, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams because I show up in ways that like won't ever make sense to you. Goes back to where we started. Uh, why am I a six foot five a presenting a cis man who has my nails painted, who's incredibly effusive in the in the in the way that I talk, who leverages all of this privilege to be incredibly disruptive and affrontive, affrontive uh, in in the way that I do it. Right, like you're not you. Don't waste your time doing it, honey. This will never make sense to you, right? And, and this is not unique in this regard. It's the same sauce that like has the world following Beyonce and enveloped by all that Michelle Avai Robinson Obama does. Like this ain't new. This is this is this is just what we do. And I'm not saying that like to to, to be funny, but the work is really in those who have benefited from the privilege in sitting with themselves. And asking and answering some of the questions around how they benefited from it, how they've allowed themselves to lie to themselves about not being able to or wanting to acknowledge it, and to think about what they can do to disrupt it. And and for me, that's the most meaningful work, if only for the reason that like I will never understand, and I don't want to, I want to be clear, what it's like to be a straight, cis, white man in this country. My visceral response is I think it would be incredibly boring, right? Like the power, (laughs) right? The power of the privilege notwithstanding, I think it would be incredibly boring. But I imagine that that, that there would be something exciting about leveraging that power to think about solutions to these problems in ways that are not bound by my experience and the legacy of Blackness that I've known and inherited and the trauma associated with it, right? And the practical example is last summer, while people were were protesting, risking their lives at the height of a global pandemic to protest protest against state-sanctioned forms of violence. And it's very much connected to um, George Floyd, but also connected to there's a Black trans man, Tony McDade, who was murdered in Tallahassee, Florida, the same week that um, George Floyd was murdered. And it's important for me um, to also acknowledge that uh, and to say his name, right? But the, the point here is that at a protest in New York, I witnessed white people say to other white people, get in front of them. Literally put put your body, white person, between the police and the rest of the protesters. And what a novel fucking concept. <laughs> One that I, in all of my Blackness and my acquired privilege, never would have formed my lips to say to them. Right. And so this this idea that those of us who have been marginalized and who have found ways to be resilient, and, and again, there's a cost of being resilient, literal, figurative, spiritual, emotional, financial, right? It, it, is, it is not that we don't have answers and it's not that we don't have the sauce. It is that white folks asking us to do the work for them is how white supremacy maintains itself. It's, it's how anti-Blackness is designed to work. And it allows them to like sit with their arms folded and talk about how difficult it is to adopt more pronouns or to you know, make connections between 
uh, how easy it is for us to accept a cisgendered heterosexual woman changing her name when she gets married, but making it incredibly difficult, if impossible, for a trans or non-binary person to do the very same thing. I, I love how you're pre- presenting this because I think, you, you know, you gave your identifiers and I always have people give their identifiers. And part of it is perspective. But the other part is to de- destroy stereotypes mm-hmm. because people don't like being told you're not what you're supposed to be. And that happens to pretty much, I think anyone who's not white, right? Like, Oh, you don't act like other black people. Oh, I didn't know girls like that. Oh, I didn't think gay people were like that. Like it just, the list and list goes on and on. And so I think that's part of it. When you were talking earlier about the trans women who have been killed, I realized, and I'm not going to say it, but I realized that, a stereotype popped into my head of how and why they might've been killed that I never knew that was there. Cause I just never been presented. And I was it around sex work, um, sex work and deception. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Which we should name and talk about. Okay. Like, what, uh, uh, yeah. So let's, 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 yeah, let's go, let's go there. Uh, right. Let's, let's so the sex work is easier uh, for me, right? So there's research that affirms this, right? That for trans folk who are white, they will often perform and or play with gender while benefiting from their whiteness in professional environments. And then they cash out when they retire. Okay. Right. They, they're able to use their privilege to engage in what might be forms of deception and not have to engage in sex work. Asian American folks, and then there's, again, a, a broader set of research that is not anchored in this country, but has everything to do with fetishes and ladyboys and other e- economies throughout the world. But Asian folks are often celebrated and able to access a different form of work, even with the barriers that are associated with how gender uh, expectations and performance are policed in corporate and or work environments. Those options don't exist for Black folks. They just don't. And so I, I don't want to overgeneralize because some people choose to engage in sex work. It is the oldest profession. And there are often policies which say a Black trans woman can be denied access to public housing, she can be followed around stores and denied the ability to buy the clothes that one would need in order to go to a job interview. She can be discriminated against in many ways throughout the job application process, including stereotypes and stigma associated with names or addresses. That's to assume that they have stable housing, again, to go back to one of the first conditions, right? Not even to name the socially informed stigma that one encounters when we appreciate that most people, I won't say most, many people who have not demonstrated the competence and compassion to have trans people invite them into their lives, meet transness as a joke or a punchline through media. There's a a powerful film called Disclosure, which makes this painfully clear. I wish that it was more um, intersectional and featured more uh, stories uh, and inclusion of uh, Blackness. However, um, it makes clear that often 
trans people and our characters in the media are reduced to sex workers, e.g. the scene in Sex in the City where Samantha's having a conversation with folks using terms that I will never use, or they are victims of sex uh, work-related violence, e.g. any uh, time you turn on the TV and look at Law & Order SVU, right? And while those things are represented in media, there are efforts throughout this country to continue to either remove policy barriers to sex work that would make it safer for individuals who choose to engage in the practice to do so, and to also allow for similar shifts, Bostock being one of them, that allow for more entree into spaces that have been otherwise marked off as reserved and not accessible or available to folks who are not who are either unable or unwilling to perform these expectations that people have based on traditional, I'm doing air quotes, or normal values, again, things that are constructs. So, so there's two thoughts. I'll try to I'll try not to be very researchy. I'll try to be straightforward. But there are two divergent thoughts. But one is so I'm a woman. So my my alliance, my connection with trans women is as a woman, historically, before I was born and since I've been born, my experience is people policing my body and my existence. Mm-hmm. And so it is a measure of privilege that uh, an extremely conservative, or I won't even say conservative, we won't, we won't label it with a, with a political stance, but someone who is you know, white and middle class and doesn't understand how policies against trans women will just roll up to being policies against women, period. Like that connection yeah. is so clear. The the joke that I do like, um, Michelle Wolf says about all these men freaking about, it, about transgender women in bathrooms, women don't have a problem with that. Like that's not, that's not a female problem. That is a man's problem, but the men are the ones doing the policies. And I'm like, I don't care who's in the bathroom. Can we close the wage gap? You know, like yeah, and even more, even more precise though. While we're here, which is right, like the date. So this shows up in in three ways. One is yes, it's a it's a man problem, but it also becomes a a, a a a less of a male joke. But in my mind, it signals the male fetishization of women's bodies and this unresolved uh, homoerotic sensitivity ability that shows up in a lot of conservative legislators or leaders, right? That's one. Yeah. Two, the way it's been weaponized in policy spaces that result in controlling or preventing non-binary, non-conforming bodies from being able to access spaces is really targeted trans folks under this guise of them being predators. Uh, and again, false. What the data shows is that folks who are, who are likely to show up in bathrooms in ways that make uh, women and girls unsafe are most likely to be predators that are especially afflicted by mental illness and or related to folks, right? This is where we need to have different conversations about the things that we're actually worried about. The third thing that's come to mind with regard to this is that the bathroom conversation often gets blown out of proportion in public spaces when the reality is that most people have and have known access to gender neutral bathrooms their entire lives. I said this to my mother and so forth when she was vexed about this. And I was like, your bathroom at home is a gender neutral bathroom. This ain't that deep, right? Like, let's not make this much more complicated than it needs to be, right? That's one thing. And 
most schools and other institutions throughout this country have found ways to create solutions to these now socially identified problems by these politicians who should otherwise be concerned with actual social problems in ways that allow people in that community to feel safe and included, right? And so I, I'm sitting in this again because what I feel like in this moment is that there are two overwhelming groups of people in this like club of democracy. And like the one group of people is like, look, this section this right, this whole club should really just be for us. We wanted y'all to build it. We yeah. wanted y'all to provide the entertainment. We want y'all to provide the service. Like we actually don't want to see you. We want you to be invisible. But I'm. But right. what I'm willing to do because of the space that we in and the environmental conditions, we're no longer in the majority. We're not birthing as many children. We like the the power structures are changing. Right. Mm-hmm. Georgia just sent two Democrats to to Congress. Right. Like. The, the systems are changing. It's a part of the, the, the process. So what they are saying is like, we'll move the rope a little bit, right? Like that's one community. Yeah. There's another community, right? That And, and this one I, I struggle with more because I feel like it's 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 Black folk who are, are in this like, well, you know, okay, y'all gay folks, right? Like, okay, we're okay with y'all, but, but n- not the rest of the community. It's just too much. And what I know is, again, I was looking for the, this book earlier, Patricia Hill Collins, Intersectionality, Patricia Hill Collins and Sarmia Blige. Intersectionality is a way of understanding and analyzing the complexity in the world, in people and in human experiences, the condition, the events rather, and conditions of social and political life and the self can seldom be understood as shaped by one factor. They are generally shaped by many factors in diverse and mutually influencing ways. When it comes to social inequality, people's lives and the organization of power in a given society are better understood as being shaped not by a single axis of social division, be it race or gender or class, I would ask sexual identity, gender orientation or expression, but by many axes that work together and influence each other. Intersectionality is an analytic tool, gives people better access to the complexity of the world and of themselves. This matters to me for two reasons. Like we are capable of complex thought. I taught kindergartners. My babies had some of the most thoughtful and complex conversations. They talked about death one time in a way that, that I mean, like, I wish I could record this and share this with the world. Like they 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 do these things, right? I mean, this uh, land is playing in a second, but this goes back now. Bell Hooks teaching uh, critical thinking. Bell Hooks talks about this as a as a thing that, that kids are born with, right? She says, thinking is an action. Thoughts are the, are the laboratory where one goes to pose questions and find answers, a place where visions and theory and practice come together. The heartbeat of critical thinking is a longing to know, to understand how life works. I just want people to ask questions. And I want us to understand that there are tools that we can use to answer these things that take up so much space and energy and result in people dying when that does not have to be our reality. To the point of intersectionality and this, like, we can't do this, like, You'll learn about, you know, gay folks one year and the next year we'll get to trans folks. It will never work. And it'll never work because if we move past that and understand how intersectionality works, we appreciate that we are a global majority. Black women, global majority. Queer folks, global majority. Racial minorities. Again, the terms don't even work. Global majority. Black, poor kids, brown, Latinx, native Indigenous kids in this country, the majority in public schools, when we shift the language 
and shift the, the framing and the metaphors. We can then connect. We can build coalitions in ways that allow us to actually shift policy and shift power. So I have two questions and you can choose. One of them is the idea about words matter. You mentioned that earlier. And the terminology workbook project that you have is really fascinating. So I'd like to hear about that. But then also, since we're down this road, one of the things that I've been learning more about, um, Disclosure is one of those places where you can learn about it. Listeners, go to Netflix, watch Disclosure. It is very interesting. Here's the trailer for Disclosure. I can't even tell you how many times I've been in public space, particularly early in my transition, when I would walk into a subway car and people would just burst into laughter. And I think people are been trained to have that reaction. According to a study from GLAAD, 80% of Americans don't actually personally know someone who is transgender. So most of the information that Americans get about who transgender people are, what our lives are and are about, comes from media. We've been around since there was uh, footage. You just have to look for us. Can we all just talk about D.W. Griffith for a minute? Not only is he incredibly racist, but he turned gender non-conforming people into the joke. So it's like you can't have like queer trans people and blackness in the same space at the same time. So what's to say about my queer trans black ass? They've died so many times they can't even count on camera. I've been a prostitute, prostitute one, prostitute two, call girl. Okay. <laughs> the crying game created a ripple effect. You are a trans person who existed, made people physically ill was the way in which my favorite movie as a child ended. There are lots of ugly things about our history, but I think we have to know them. I have been beaten. I have been thrown in jail for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? There is a one-word solution to almost all the problems in trans media. We just need more. And that way, the occasional clumsy representation wouldn't matter as much because it wouldn't be all that there is. You see a fierceness that's coming up now. That's because we ain't got nothing to lose. These are my sisters up here, but the struggle is real. The ways in which trans people have been represented have suggested that we're mentally ill, that we don't exist. And yet here we are, and we've always been here. The binary is more and more being pointed out as something that has never really existed and is a construct. So you can... Take either either path, but those are the two things that what you were saying just really uh, were really salient to me. By the way, I feel like I'm in class, and I love class. Like class is my happy place. So this is I like get that really saying. That's how this PhD worked out. So words matter. Um, how that how that came into being? I I I triple majored as an undergraduate student at Columbia um, in English, Creative Writing, and African American Studies. And so I understand that there's power in precision, and I truly believe that words matter. It is, again, why I use same gender loving. I insist on using it in part because, again, gay makes people think about sex. They think about position. They think about power. They think about stigma. They might think about HIV. They don't think about love. And what I know is that in the conversation Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin had about the response to the 
uh, revolution that we needed, all of the answers were centered in love, right? So, so let's you save gentle loving when you're going to talk about me, right? And words matter came into being because one of the first things that I did in my position at NBJC was to host what we called a summit on Black Lives. It was a second summit hosted by NBJC. And the goal was to bring together leaders of legacy civil rights organizations, leaders of faith communities, people who were in positions of power that were either thought to be or acted as gatekeepers or communicators to other Black communities. And the one goal we had was just to say, look, if you care about Black people, you got to care about HIV. That's it. And, and we understand that the work you do is important. For a lot of our organizations, it's singular. So we're not asking you to change your mission, but we're asking you to increase your competence so you can demonstrate a little bit more compassion. Because I don't care what work you're doing, whether it's the faith-related advocacy work of the NAACP, the community-based service work of our Black Greek-letter organizations, what should be the least of these centered faith work that should happen outside of a church church walls, like Black people with HIV are showing up in those spaces. And we are still dying as we have been since the epidemic was introduced in the late 80s. And that doesn't have to be our reality. Again, for white folks, it's different. They have been, and talking in generalities, again, all this stuff is much more complicated based on intersectional experiences, right? White LGBTQIA plus folks will have a different experience than white folks who are cis and het. But generally, white folks have had the benefit of access to drugs like PrEP and PEP. I take uh, PrEP every day. It's a pill, pre-exposure prophylaxis. It reduces the likelihood that I will become HIV positive by 90%. I have to take it daily. There's a new antiviral injectable version of it that might shift it, might be something that would increase the number of Black folks who are taking it. But those are just two of the medical advancements that have happened in the last two decades where we, we see the data shows Black folks are not taking up and participating in or benefiting from those advancements at the same rate as our counterparts. We are still dying. The CDC said, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, that if if statistics continued, one in every two Black men, Black men who have sex with men, would become HIV positive. Like one in every two, there was a period in my life where I, and I, I remember a friend of mine reminded me of this recently, like, Tell it, my friends, like, I've accepted that as, as a Black, Sandra loving man in this country, if I'm going to love another Black man in particular, the Revolutionary Act talked about by, by uh, Joseph Beam, chances are I'm going to become HIV positive, right? And, and this, again, is not that the statistics are the way that they are, not because we engage in riskier behaviors. The data shows the opposite. The statistics are the way they are because Black folks are in proximity to and we love other Black people, including in romantic and intimate relationships. They're because of health disparities. We don't trust, uh, understandably so, the medical industrial complex. We often don't have access to doctors who are competent. I had to fight. I had to advocate for myself with a Black female physician to get access to PrEP. Really? Yeah. I mean, and we talked about psychology. Let's, let's name that it wasn't until February of last year where the American Psychological Association apologized for their role in That's affirming true. the stigma associated with homophobia and transphobia, right? Like all this stuff is embedded in systems. And again, I think often about how Black women have been fed this lie that HIV is a Black gay male disease, that you only get it if you messing with men on the down low. Right. 
I love Auntie Oprah, but the damage she did with that will never be undone. Her and J.L. King together. Uh, but the point here, right, is that like we also exist in a, a a culture of hypocrisy where we expose children. I thought about this during Valentine's Day and all of the like onesies about like um, I'm daddy's property or you know I, I can't wait to be spoiled, right? Like these things that again go back to these expectations. I wrote this down earlier, and I, I want to say name it now, right? Like, learning begins at birth, and the preparation for learning starts well before birth. We start indoctrinating children into these gendered binaries and the bullshit that comes with them often before they are born. I just, one of my best friends just had another gender reveal. We know we know the baby's gender, a, a hypothetical, a guess, right? A, a educated guess. Chances are it'll be consistent, right? The child also could be trans, but, but we'll have to deal with what it means for, you know, this football celebration with this blue paint and now all this boy stuff, right? <laughs> Literal, right? Inculcation, right? So, the, the goal was to introduce to Black leaders that you have to care more about HIV AIDS. And in the process of having this conversation, there was a panel. And Angela Rye, one of my best friends, I call her twin. Um, I love her. I would fight somebody for her. So stay out of my comments if you, if you got something critical to say. Angela Rye was talking about her cousin, Bridget, Bridget Gordon, who was on Oprah who actually talked about becoming uh, HIV positive through her relationship with her husband. She got married to this man. He cheated on on her. Watch the episode. Bridget does amazing work, find ways to support her. But the long and short of it is that Angela was telling this story and Angela used the term full-blown AIDS. And there was a Black woman in the audience, Carmarian, I forget her last name, blame my head, not my heart, who stood up with all of the grace that Black women muster and said, respectfully, please don't use that term. And she went on to say full-blown AIDS is a term that was created by the media. It conjures up this image of HIV being this thing that's going to like ooze out and bubble onto somebody. So it, it feeds stigma. The actual, the term you're reaching for is stage three HIV. And in that moment, she modeled what our often innocent, at least at first, use of stigmatizing language does for someone who like, right, we were able to talk about it and we created the toolkit. The goal of the toolkit was to acknowledge like we often don't have these conversations yeah. because we don't have the language and, and we don't want to get it wrong. So we're not going to say anything. And, and, and in not saying anything, we're actually not having the opportunity to build and learn from one another. And so the toolkits, there are three of them now. There's a Words Matter HIV toolkit. There's a Words Matter Gender Justice toolkit, which we use to support some earlier parts of our conversation that we also have a companion toolkit for uh, students and mental health connected to a report we did with Congress called Ring the Alarm. Um, but they all include terms. You know, here's a recommendation. Don't use this. Here's why. Here's a here's a term that you can use. It would include things like safe, gender, loving for people who are still like, I don't understand that and I don't want to adopt it. My hope is that it also leads to us having more meaningful conversations. Like I accept what, what became the um, Chappelle joke about like the alphabet people and and right a part of my advocacy has to anticipate people saying like I don't want to learn another acronym I don't want to learn another term cool I'll give this up if you give yours up <laughs> and you giving yours up also means that we have to deal with this power structure that allows you not to even have to name something because you exist in the space of, of privilege right and and I also hope that in the case of the HIV toolkit it leads people to get tested you mm-hmm. can visit our website and request an at-home testing kit or find a free testing site near you. Um, I hope is that it encourages people to have conversations, right? I, I made the point about babies because we expose young people to sex and intimacy 
often without being responsible and having then conversations connected to that and or supporting people and talking about and naming pleasure. And so there's often the way in which connected to the previous point about HIV and Black cis het women, that there aren't simply spaces to ask or to talk about how one is protecting themselves and might be protecting you with regard to intimate partnership. Uh, and so my hope is that the spaces I move through in this moment, um, it's NBJC, but that the spaces I will continue to move through, I'm able to, to leverage the best parts of those spaces to help make these connections clearer so that ultimately we don't have to, we shouldn't have to have these conversations. The last thing that, that, that came to mind as we were talking earlier about was Freema Robowski, a mentor, friend, former president of UMBC. Often he's quoting someone, I forget who he quoted. I, t- I say all the time it's his quote, but it's the, we should not be beholden to the tyranny of either or, but be liberated by the beauty of both and, right? And for me, like it, it is by design that most people don't celebrate thinking. It's hard work, right? The Latin root of the word education is educare. It means to draw out, right? Like the process is difficult by design, which is why schools should be more supportive of kids who face more challenges, not as a result of problems that they've created, but problems that adults have created and and advocated responsibility for them to deal with. And so it is, you know, toxic stress and prolonged exposure to trauma. All of that stuff has the physiological implications of making you feel like you're sleep deprived. Like if, if you are consumed with, physical safety, housing security, or food that is actually nourishing, like all this policy stuff is phantasmagorical. It is as ethereal as Tinkerbell. And I understand that that's in part, that's a part why like, you know, you're not sitting in these privileged spaces having this conversation now. And my hope is that those who can do more choose to be more active One of the things that I love about having elephant stories is I get to find people that can talk about things I know nothing about. Like that's, what's really interesting. So I I do so much appreciate this classroom. This was like really good. So I need you to to, like write a book or something so I can bring you on like in another year for the whole different topic. This literally, I'm writing about all of this. Like my, my research is about the experiences of black LGBTQ students in middle and high schools and their reflections on naming that like, Safety is, you know, bullshit metaphor. Schools aren't designed for their safety. It's a lot about belonging and the ways in which adults are trained to police them and help them to adopt white supremacist behaviors and not necessarily come into their fullness. It's a lot about how aware they are of how free and fabulous their lives are. It's good stuff. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. Thank you for listening to Elephant Stories. If you like the show, please subscribe, share on social media, and just talk about what you've heard. This episode was produced and edited by me to bring Westbrook. Original music is by Robin and David, the musical geniuses behind DRTM Productions. Talk soon.